0: To the latest episode of the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast, I'm your host Matt Harmon, joined in studio by my good friend, my longtime uh, colleague in the New Testament Guild, and a man who is celebrating a
1: birthday today. Uh, let's go! It's Ben Glad. What's going on, man? All right, man. Just I'm feeling a year older today. I've got I've got less hair grayer hair and hair in places where there shouldn't be hair. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things that they, uh,
0: they don't warn you enough about that, uh, hair continues to grow like in your ears and your
1: nose, but other that's places things I'd look at, I'd look at my son, my oldest, he's got Judy's got really dense, curly brown hair. And I tell him, I'm like, man, you just enjoy those blessings. Enjoy yes. those curls, man. Enjoy the fullness <laughs> of the head. Yes. It is a fleeting. It is fleeting.
0: Yes. Yes. Father time catches us all eventually. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, if, uh, if you're interested in uh, connecting with us uh, on the podcast here, you can find us at BT briefing pod. You can email the show bib Theo briefing pod at gmail.com. And uh, as you have opportunity, we'd love for you to leave a review and a five-star rating. It helps out uh, the metrics and helps people find the podcast. So, um, yeah, this is uh, our second episode, and we've got uh, more ideas coming down the pike. It's just a matter of uh, figuring out how to, how to get those in play. But um, today, we are going to talk about a new book that Ben has coming out. Uh, By the time this episode drops, it might actually even officially be
1: out. Have you gotten your author's copies yet? I have not, Matt. Uh I'm Uh deeply distressed. I emailed Crossway just a couple days ago and I was like, where Where is this? Because you typically get them about three or four weeks out.
0: And I believe the
1: book is released three weeks from today. So I am hopeful that I will get that it, will be, that it will be a birthday present. Wouldn't that be amazing, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. To celebrate my 44th birthday with a Crossway present. I mean, that's, it just absolutely. doesn't get any better than that. Well, I'm sure our friends at Crossway are uh, working
0: feverishly to make that oh, happen. Oh, they
1: are. I'm sure they are. They will yes. hand deliver it.
0: <laughs> and if not... Uh, I will be your wingman at ETS to get you an author's <laughs> you copy, just you like go. you were for there me last go. year. There
1: you go. I remember that.
0: That's so funny. Oh, man. That's one of my favorite ETS stories of all time. But That's maybe in another story. podcast,
1: we'll, we'll, we'll share that. Story. But, too.
0: Yes. Okay. So Ben, tell us about the book. What's the title and what series is it in?
1: Yeah. So the title is From the Manger to the Throne. A Theology of Luke, I originally entitled the volume From the Major to the Right Hand of the Father, and Crossway said that's too long. So let's Mm -hmm. say From the Major to the Throne, A Theology of Luke. This is not the Theology of Luke. I don't know if that could be done. If it could be done, certainly not in 100, or (laughs) mine is, I think my volume is around 200 pages. So it cannot be done in 200 pages, I assure you. So mine is A Theology of Luke, from the major to the throne. It is part of, uh, I believe it's called a, a New Testament Theology or the New Testament Theology series edited by Tom Schreiner and Brian Rosner. This is volume number four of the series. The first one, I believe, is Tom Schreiner's called The Joy of Hearing, A Theology of the Book of Revelation. The second volume released was by his son, Patrick Schreiner, the Mission of the Triune God, A Theology of Acts. The third one uh, published is by Ben Merkel, United the Christ, Walking in the Spirit, A Theology of Ephesians. So mine is the fourth. And I believe the next one is on uh, the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and then mine
0: on Second Peter and Jude, I think... When is yours coming part. out, Matt? It's late January,
1: early February. Late January, early yes. February. So that, that'll so be, do you think, are you, is yours two from mine? So um, Peter, it goes Peter Orr and then is it, or is yours I, before Peter or's?
0: No, I think, well, that's a good question. I'm not sure where, where his fits. I, I haven't looked recently to see when the projected release date is for Peter Orr on right. that. Have you seen the proofs to yours? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's good. Uh, good. It's, it's well advanced in the process. So. um I think um, it, it, and it actually they probably, I think they could have gone with it sooner, but I think for whatever reason they decided to hold it. So they don't have a glut it. of
1: these right,
0: right. Uh, all coming out at the same time. So right.
1: I wonder and, how and, many they're going to come out. I do if they're doing three a year, two a year, four a year. I wonder what their plan is.
0: Yes. Um, that's a good question. I mean, they're, uh, my guess is they're probably doing one maybe every quarter, though. I just looked up Peter Orr's... Uh, it's going to be called The Beginning of the Gospel, A Theology of Mark. And that's slated for January 10th, and mine is slated for like the first week of February. So maybe they're doing a, a, a burst of them here early oh, on. Oh. And then um kind of depends on also when authors turn in manuscripts as well. So. Right, right, right. But yeah, so this series is really designed to be uh, something of an entry-level biblical theology uh, series. So it doesn't require someone, so it's, in one sense, it's um, very accessible, right? So it's not designed Mm -hmm. to be that super technical, Uh, you're not going to get bogged down in Greek and Hebrew and those sorts of things. Um, Although the idea is that the the writing of the book of course is based on careful scholarship and deep engagement with the text. Um, And so uh, this is a a very promising series, I think uh, that will serve the church. Well, I hope so. I, I think it's a terrific idea. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I I can't remember who I was talking to about this recently, but um, it was one of my students. Maybe Uh, I was just trying to express that how, how blessed we are to live really in, this is the golden age. Of it the is most
1: theology. certainly the golden age, most certainly. And it is uh
0: never before really in the history of the church, I would argue, have there been so many resources available doing good, robust, thoughtful, biblical theology like this.
1: It just, it, it, it's fun to be living in that sort of golden age. Right. And I think that we can sense it. There is an excitement uh, of biblical theology, not just in reform, you know, traditional reformed uh, mm-hmm. camps, like in the, like it, you know, here at RTS, I, I would be part of that camp, but even outside, yeah. uh, even in Southern Baptist uh, mm-hmm. camps, and there is a there is a deep hunger in Baptist circles, and even just broadly evangelical churches to get into biblical theology and that's why we're seeing an explosion of these resources. And there's a, there's this desire for it. And that's why publishers are into it. And it's, it's, it's so vast now that it's hard to even keep track of all these things. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, some big
0: picture questions before we dive into the, uh, the details a little bit of this book. Um, How does biblical theology help us study a
1: book like Luke? Right. So every book of the Bible is part of a larger story. And if you don't know the larger swaths of scripture, then you're going to be, it's going to be difficult to understand that book in and of itself. For example, uh, growing up, and I think even most Christians, when they read books, they books of the Bible, they typically read them in isolation. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense in which you can read books in isolation and still get the heart of it. You can still get the broad strokes of it. One can still be converted. You can understand the gospel. You can understand what Christ has done Mm -hmm. uh, at an individual level there in isolation. However, to get the the full message of each book, well, one needs to read it in light of, Well, all the other books. That's how it's designed. And one of the ways, and one of the ways that we can trace this is to see how New Testament authors and even how Old Testament authors how how they talk to one another because they're in dialogue with each other. Yeah. And there are roughly thirty quotations in Luke's gospel, hundreds of allusions. I'm not quite sure that anybody has mapped out all the allusions, simply because there are so many of them. And that's just Luke. We're not even talking about Acts. Yeah. And uh, so we can see where Luke is very much interested in the old Testament in finishing that story and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. In fact, that's one of the purposes in him in Luke writing the book. We actually get this in verse uh, two uh, or I'm sorry, verse one, Luke says many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled. Now, he may be talking here about Mark and Matthew, about these other gospels. Mm-hmm. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been, but look at how he frames it. That have been fulfilled among us. He doesn't say, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that Jesus did. Yeah. Instead, he says, The things that Jesus fulfilled. And do you see by him just framing Christ's life, he frames the whole the whole the whole of it as a fulfillment of the old testament. So yeah. to divorce Luke or to divorce, divorce any New Testament book from the Old Testament is to read it in isolation. So that's why that's why biblical theology is important to reading all of the books. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Book. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things your uh, your book, your, your theology book here on Luke does so well is um, paying careful attention to those Old Testament citations that show up, uh, as well as allusions and echoes. Um, and you're right. I, I still think there's a lot to be done in the gospel of Luke in terms of uh, allusions and echoes that, uh, as even I'm working through the text, uh, working on a commentary uh, it's, it's sometimes it's challenging to not get lost or just to get yeah. tra- you know, running down rabbit trails of like, Ooh, that's a tantalizing little echo there. And, you know, just having to say, let me try to hit it quick and then
1: just kind move of on. move on. I know, um, you know, Matt, I'm sure you feel like this, but it's inevitably every time I read the new Testament, there's an overwhelming, I have this overwhelming sensation that these authors really really know the Old Testament like it's oh, there's yeah. a deep understanding it's deeper than uh, it's it's absolutely incredible and the more that you read the Old Testament and get familiar with it the more you realize just how these how much these Old Testament authors uh, really understood it and it, it, they're they're breathing it and it's yeah. and it's almost in every word
0: yeah and I think sometimes we especially if you grew up in a church background, you don't often realize, I think sometimes just how dependent maybe on the old Testament, uh, even a gospel like Luke is, it just, even in terms of the conceptual framework, the categories, even just titles, you know, when it talks about, uh, raising up a horn for David, like, well, what does that mean? You, you don't know what it means unless you know who David is and why he's significant within the larger scheme of what God is doing in the world or, you know, Uh, other quotes where it's like, oh, that's a quote from Isaiah 49, and that's a servant Mm -hmm. text. Well, why does that matter? You know, well, Mm -hmm. that because there are all these categories, these frameworks that Luke is stepping into and saying, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these ideas, these concepts, these hopes, these
1: dreams that uh, are set up in the Old Testament. That's exactly right. Yeah, they don't, they're, it gives them they're finishing the story. The story continues mm-hmm. because it's the climax of the story. Not only does yeah. the story continue, it, it gets better and better and richer and richer right. than we then the later the latter parts of the story inform the earlier parts. I, I, my son is is reading Harry Potter for the first time mm-hmm. and I've read it a couple times and I my, I love the seventh volume and I, I like the seventh volume because in some sense it teaches me, how they read the Bible, because in the seventh volume, it goes back to the very beginning of the story and it Mm. shows you what's really going on in the first six volumes. And it's kind of, it's bringing all the threads together. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, okay. So let's think a little bit about this book in particular. What if anything surprised you the most in writing this book on uh, a theology of Luke. I mean, you you had dealt with Luke before in uh, in your book, The Story Retold. I don't know if you wrote that chapter or whether Beale wrote that chapter. I did. I did. But, uh, and then also in your handbook on the Gospels, you you know you you work through Luke. So it's not like you were starting from scratch when you started this project in Luke. But even so, I imagine there might have been some things that you came across that maybe surprised you whether it's in terms of emphasis or significance. So yeah, just talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I'll just mention one thing. Um, Whenever you start a project uh, at a proposal level or whatever, you kind of, you go into the project with certain expectations, having some sense of of the layout of the project. So broadly speaking, I knew the layout, kind of how things were going to go. But then as you get into the project, you start to see layers or you can use the word rabbit trails or whatever. You start to see characters and players and themes really come to light and how they crisscross. And one of the themes that I noticed I mentioned, I mentioned two. Um, the first one is Luke's emphasis on the spiritual and angelic realm. And I had known that, that obviously that's a major compartment of his theology uh, that's very apparent. But then I realized how other themes are woven into that spiritual dimension. For example, peace. I have a section or at least a chapter on peace. And I noticed that at mm-hmm. the beginning, of, so there are three major peace statements in the book. And at the beginning, remember how the angels declare peace. Well, where's peace? They say peace on earth. Now, that's an odd thing. Why don't they just say there's peace? But they say there's peace on earth. And then yeah. at the end of the book, You have the pilgrims at the triumphal entry. They say there's now peace in heaven. Well, that's Mm -hmm. odd. Even I. Howard Marshall says that's an odd statement. So beginning of the (laughs) book, yeah. It's like, but then he doesn't quite do anything with it. Uh, You know, at the beginning of the book, you have peace on earth. And then at at the end, you have peace in heaven. And then finally, at the very, very end, uh, as Jesus is ascending, he then says, peace to you, peace to his disciples. And so I, I, Mm -hmm. I try to carve out, really a theology of peace, but I connect it to Luke's larger program of demons and angels and how, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus is, is ushering this peace that not uh, that it's, it's absolutely pervasive. And I mean, if you think about your Roman history, remember it's Caesar Augustus that introduces what the Pax Romano. the Pax mm-hmm. Romano is a significant piece to his career. But, yeah. um, but you can see, you can see in Luke 2 where Caesar Augustus is mentioned there in verse one. But then, little on just a little farther down, the angels are declaring what true peace. Mm-hmm. This this the that Rome is declaring a superficial peace. It's temporal peace. It's not true peace. Whereas what the angels are declaring that there has one come, one is here who is now bringing peace. And how does Jesus uh, establish peace by defeating? The devil and by defeating these demons, he unshackles humanity from that bondage so that they may enjoy peace with God and with peace with one another, with Jews and now Gentiles. And and it's an amazing thing. And now that Jesus has secured peace, one of the things that I mentioned at the very end is that now that there's a kingdom of peace, God's presence can come and can move in. I was just reading this morning in my devotions how how King Solomon uh uh is begins to give instructions to his commanders and to really all of the israel to say okay now is the time to build the temple and he explains why because we finally have rest we finally have peace mm-hmm. and and there's even an allusion to that at the end of the book that i argue that really now is the time when god is going to dwell with his people and how can how can god do that is by being uh uh in a presence of a peaceful location in a peaceful, uh, humanity. Hmm. Yeah, that's really rich. Um,
0: and I do think in the, in the work that I've done in, in Luke's gospel, I've not seen nearly as much discussion of that as, as no. you devote
1: to it in your, uh, in your book. Well, I just get excited. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, once I start to see, yeah. Once I start to see a, a couple threads kind of like poking up, you know, it was like a sweater. Like you're not supposed to touch the thread. Just right. You know, just, <laughs> just trim, trim maybe. them. Maybe, maybe burn them off at the top. Right. <laughs> you know, my mom was like, don't you touch that thread? Don't you, <laughs> don't you touch it? Like, I got to touch it. That's right. So I start to pull and I pull and then what happens? Well, the whole thing unravels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. So, um, uh, this kind of leads into my next question, uh, in terms of, just thinking about um, that thread, you mentioned that, and we've talked about now that a lot of commentaries don't really do as much with that peace theme as, as Luke might warrant, but were there any other themes that you identified or traced out, that you feel like commentaries or most commentaries just don't really fully appreciate or recognize the significance of, and again, we should make note, both of us have written commentaries. And so there's an, understandable limitation I mean you can only do so much with the space you've given uh, but uh, yeah just a- areas that you right. feel like man I just right. don't see this much in the commentaries and it feels right. like it's kind of important
1: right yeah so it's hard man and, and you and you get this I mean I I could spend my days just reading commentaries and articles and essays like I could fill every second of the day doing that yeah um, I've chosen not to do that I I spend far more time reading the Bible and I just kind of check, I kind of check myself with commentaries and essays and mm-hmm. articles, or if I see a book come across, I'm like, I need to read this or, but I, I really spend far more time in the text just because my life is short. I, it's just, I think it's just my, what God has has called me to do to spend more time in the text. So because of that, I, I you know, I, I just have a sense, you know, I haven't read there's It's, thousands of things so i'm sure that along the way that there are times when you have people pointing out these things but but my senses from what i have read i have not seen commentators put as much emphasis on these things than i than i would and i've I've already mentioned the piece one i'll mention one more and that's found in the magnificat they do mention they 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 commentators do have a sense here but they don't tease it out the way that I do. And here in the Magnificat, we find one of the most significant texts in all of Luke and Acts. And it's, um, and it's, we, we call it the Magnificat and it's here. Mary is speaking and she says he, uh, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate right there. So I call this the great reversal, how Mm -hmm. there is a pervasive theme through across Luke Acts where God brings down the mighty. Well, who are the mighty? Well, the answer is it's all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's both physical rulers and spiritual rulers. He has brought them down. On the other hand, those who are already low, he exalts. So this would explain why there's a vertical concern in the temptation when the devil says, "Hey, fall down, go down the side of the of the temple so that the angels may lift you up, may exalt you." See this? It's it's a way for Jesus to be exalted without the humiliation of the cross. But so there's this pervasive notion that even Jesus throughout his career, of course, at the cross he is in his lowest estate at that point where he bears literally hell itself and goes down to the depths, so that he may How high does Jesus go? Is he just is he simply resurrected and just sort of goes back to the original? No, he goes all the way to the right hand of the Father. So that's why I say from the manger to the throne, his his humiliation all the way to the highest point, which is the very throne itself. We can even see this, like in uh, one of my favorite stories, is, Zac- is Zac- Zacchaeus. Yeah, and I always think of the Sunday school rhyme, right? The little song. Everybody Zacchaeus does. Was, yep. He was a wee little man and a wee little That's man was right. he climbed up into the sycamore tree for all he wanted to see. And it's an odd thing because the gospels don't typically point out how tall people are. Like, have you right. thought about that? Like, you don't <laughs> ah, yeah. oh, this guy John the Baptist. Normal height, five right. nine. You don't right. you don't have people's <laughs> stature yeah. or weight typically mentioned. They they really don't talk talk often about a person's appearance, anyways. But here you have how, how how tall Zacchaeus is, and I think it's because here he is. He's a very low. He's he's a chief tax collector. He he is mm-hmm. the most despised. I don't like paying taxes. I'm assuming Matt, you don't like paying taxes either. I do not. Uh, I, I don't think it's, in the words of John Piper, a pleasure. Um, I, nobody likes the tax guy, you know, in, in, in especially in, in the first century with how it worked. And so mm-hmm. here I think we have the exaltation of somebody who is exceedingly, exceedingly low in the worst yeah. possible position. And it's amazing how he's exalted. Even in the tree he's exalted. And then it, it says that Jesus uh, stands up there, uh, in his house. And so I think that there are these vertical concerns and notice even right before Zacchaeus, you have this elite Pharisee, how he himself stands up and says, look at how great I am. Do you remember this? Yeah. Look at how great I am. He is, he's exalting himself. So it's just, this is, so I call it the great reversal and it really is a pervasive thing that's, that's mm-hmm. rich in the Old Testament and uh, really all the way through through all of it. Have you seen that, Matt, in your own work on, on Luke? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think one of the ways that
0: that comes out and that, that it shows how important of a thread that is, is that Jesus uses this punchline of uh, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted he uses it in different contexts at mm-hmm. different points. So, mm-hmm. you know, he uses it at the end of that, uh, of the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right. That's kind of the punchline there. Right. But it's also at the end of, and I think this is Luke. Um, I think it's maybe Luke 11 here. Yeah. Let's um, see. it's where he's at the dinner party and he basically says, don't take the most, uh, important seats. Yes, uh, maybe it's 13. Is that where it is? Yeah. Parable of the wedding feast, um, where he basically says, you know, don't go in, pick the best spot because someone right. more important might right, come. right? And then you, yes. get, you get kicked down to the bottom. And then he, the punchline is in verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So it's, it's one of those things where the fact that Jesus can use that same punchline, in such different contexts tells you how important that theme is and how that is one of the sort of central organizing themes in the gospel that he can draw different applications out of it and apply it to different contexts Mm, mm, because it's it's the same underlying principle. And um, you're right. It goes all the way back to the Magnificat. And I, I think if, if you're going to understand what's going on in the Gospel of Luke, you you could do no better than to just pour yourself into that Magnificat, as well as even you know the other uh, extended you know uh, poetry or songs in those opening chapters. If you get what's going on there and have that Old Testament uh, framework, you, your your eyes and your heart and your mind are just going to light up with oh my
1: goodness, look at all these things they're saying about who this child is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember in Luke 10, and this would explain a very difficult text when the 72 return, Mm -hmm. and they're like, Jesus, this is amazing. We are able to cast out demons. They actually (laughs) listen to us. Yeah. That's an amazing statement. But what's even more amazing is the next line when Jesus responds and he says, hey, guys, guess what? I saw Jesus. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Mm-hmm. Now here, he's alluding to Isaiah when he does. It. It's actually yep. it's close. It, it could even it's a strong allusion. Partial quotation here, uh, and but it's a very odd statement. Satan fall like lightning. Do you see that this this from top to bottom notion, this downward movement? Luke is the only evangelist. He's the only gospel writer to include this account. And, um, this would explain why Luke uniquely adds that important piece, because you see Jesus, think of it like this. Jesus as the son of man, he's at his, at the wilderness temptation. He's the son of man and he's beginning to ascend to the ancient of days. Just like in Daniel seven, you have the son of yep. man approaching the ancient of days. When Jesus begins his ascent, he's going towards, he's going up to the ancient of days but his his ascent to heaven is is the opposite; it's asymmetrical to the devil's descent. So the devil's descending, and Jesus is ascending, and this is this would explain why you have the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, and then the descent of the devil. So you know, I, I this is an incredibly sophisticated and rich theme that Luke, more than any other gospel writer. Uh, is tr- is working out. It's a very sophisticated way of, uh, of reading uh, reading the gospel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that, that ties into um, another one of your chapters uh, actually ties into two of them. Let's talk about one of your chapters is on the success of the last Adam. And you know even in that chapter 10 passage we were just looking at, um, even that idea of, you know, Satan falling from heaven kind of has those, uh, uh, the new Adam exercising dominion over the serpent, like he was supposed to. Um, and so even that you get the sort of the reversal motif of where Adam failed in the garden. He, uh, you know, Jesus as the, as the new Adam, as the ultimate Adam, uh, is obeying and succeeding but um yeah what are some of the other ways we see that theme yeah, coming out watch, in Luke?
1: well we could just stay right here it, so verse 18 of Luke 10 says this I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven and it's because Jesus as the son of man he's fulfilling Daniel 7 mm-hmm. and when the son of man successfully defeats the fourth beast uh, he ascend, he goes to the son, he goes to the ancient of days and again in Daniel 7 the Ancient of Days then hands over the wording. There is he's he gives he hands over the kingdoms of the earth. Think of it like that. He, mm-hmm. in, in other words, the Son of Man inherits the right to rule over over the entire earth. Yeah, um, he's handing over the authority to rule over the earth because the Son of Man has defeated the fourth beast. I, I bring that up because in the temptation, that's precisely what Jesus is doing. Now watch this. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus says. And, and remember, the third um, temptation there in Luke 4, Satan quotes Psalm 91. Yeah. Now he doesn't quote verse 13. He quotes verse 12. But in yeah. verse 13, talk, verse 13 of Psalm 91 talks about how the righteous will trample on, on snakes and scorpions, which is yes. an allusion there to Genesis 3.15. So there's an ironic fulfillment there. But in any case, but watch this. So right after Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, now here it is, 19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcall, overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. In other words, do you see what Jesus is doing? Just as the Ancient of Days hands over authority to the Son of Man, now mm-hmm. Jesus, because he's fulfilled and he represents humanity, Now Jesus is now handing that authority over to his followers, and now they can fulfill Psalm 91 in Genesis 3.15 as well. Do you see that? So now Jesus is functioning uh, as the Son of Man, and I would argue, and as the Ancient of Days as well. He's handing over the ability to inherit the earth, just as... Adam and Eve were supposed to do. So this is very, so Luke is blending lots of great text together. The way that he's pulling it together Mm -hmm. is just terrific.
0: And I would say that's, that's an area of biblical theology that, uh, that I would suggest. Um, and this is one of the things that I think maybe you experience this in the classroom as well, as, as, as we both have opportunities to teach how to do biblical theology. Um, it, it feels like it, the first step is learning to kind of identify the themes and where they pop up in scripture and tracing development and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's foundational, mm-hmm. but it seems that's the first like step. it is. But I think what a lot of, um, I think even pastors and other students or readers often don't take the next step of looking at how themes are interconnected, how distinct mm-hmm. themes are interconnected, how son of man and last Adam are interconnected in a gospel like Luke. Or, um, you know, other examples all throughout, you know, when you trace the promises that, for example, throughout the Old Testament that God makes in connection with David, you know, over time, that just continues to expand out and expand out. And it's originally connected with temple and and then it's connected to shepherd metaphors down the road, like all these threads start to come together. Mm. And sometimes I think what students need to learn to be able to do is not just pay attention to one theme, they kind of get their kind of those glasses on like, I'm only looking at this thread or this theme and they miss out on, well, wait a minute, that theme, that thread takes on a whole new significance when you put it up against or in light of other themes that it's connected Mm -hmm. with to show you that sort of multi-layered approach that is so common in the biblical writers.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I tell my students, I use the metaphor again of the thread or whatever that would be called. Uh, clothing um, that these themes are bundled together. So mm-hmm. you you have like king, priest, temple, sacrifices, kingdom. Yeah. So we you have bundles of themes. You have Exodus. You have Passover. Yeah. You have uh, law. So you've got these bundles of themes, and as you, the mistake is to only view one of those threads within the bundle. And so what happens is that you ignore the other threads that's it's bound up with what we get in the gospels is that we can actually see the threads bundled together, but here's the crazy thing. And then we get, especially in, in revelation, we see new bundles. We or we'll see two bundles on top of each other. And so the trick is to kind of identify the different threads and how they're bundled in the old Mm -hmm. Testament and see how they're bundled in the new Testament and to notice uh, these how they're newly connected, if that makes sense. So there, yeah. there are now new connections made uh, within these bundles. And I, it's really the brilliance of these New Testament authors. And the more work that we pour into this and in, in look for these connections, the more we realize, oh, hey, these guys really knew the Old Testament. And look at how they are masters of weaving these things together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And
0: um, I do think that's one of the areas that is probably going to be one of the the newer frontiers within the study of biblical theology and even um, sort of later scripture authors using earlier scripture is less of an approach on just oh here's this one text that the author is pulling from mm-hmm. and they borrowed this mm-hmm. phrase or these words from it and stepping out and saying well that actually is part of a network of texts. Mm-hmm that deal with that similar thread, that same kind of theme, like, like think of like, uh, for the example, branch, you know, branch in the old Testament, multiple texts kind of feed into this branch theology of a descendant of David. And then, you know, you come into the new Testament, and you see pieces of it pulled on and, 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 uh, adapted. So, um, Again, I think there's, even though we live in the golden age of biblical theology, there is still so much oh, that can yet be done in terms of tra- tracing out the interconnectedness of ideas and texts right. and how that sheds light on like, like you were doing there with that Luke 10 passage. It could seem like an odd reference at first, right? Like, right. Okay. Right. Why, why is he suddenly just mentioning, talking about, you know, right. trampling on serpents? Right. Well, if you understand and pull back the layers You're seeing he's making a stunning biblical
1: theology point. But it's a very organic point. This is not a point that's like, oh, where did this come from? No, the grist, the grist, the basic elements here of these connections are found in the Old Testament. And uh, you've just got to, you have to start to be aware of it. You know, uh, Matt, I'm sure you see this in your own work, but. So the older way that commentators would write their materials, uh, they would focus solely on quotations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they would talk about quotations, work it out to, some, to varying degrees. And the better commentators would notice illusions. And they would, ha- they would show awareness to some of the more prominent illusions. They would say, oh, well, there's something going on here. And they yeah. may make a stab. They may take a stab at something, but then they move on. What's happening now, especially in my work, because that's just I'm I'm crazy like that. I guess I'm a maximalist is that I I think, well, not only am I looking at those illusions that people recognize, I'm on the hunt for new illusions. Yes. And then I then say, OK, why is the illusion here? How is it connected to these other illusions in the text? How is it connected to that quotation? Do you see I'm now starting to ask bundle to use that word bundle questions questions? and its relationship to other. And when you do that, you're now going to really see some new and exciting uh, insights. And this is why I think you, you just said, in some sense, this is the golden age of the of biblical theology. In another sense, there's so much more waiting to be done. And it's right yeah. here where there is much work to be done. It's focused on more discovery or discovery of illusions and how the illusions are related to other illusions or themes and or themes. For sure.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, There's two chapters in your book that we haven't touched on yet. I just figured it'd be good for us to hit these briefly if we can. Um, You have a chapter entitled The Way of Life, which is dedicated to to the Exodus slash New Exodus motif in, in Luke. Um, maybe talk about that a little bit. How you how you see that coming out, and why that matters. What what what's the payoff, so to speak, in 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 reading Luke?
1: Right. So uh, we you pick you we pick up this theme explicitly in the book of Acts, and there we see how the Christian, how the church, the early uh, initial believers, early believers in Christ, they they self identified as being part of the way. And that's a curious thing. And David Powell has shown, I think it's it's he has such a good book here, Acts in the Isaiahic New Exodus. He shows how well the way is part of Isaiah's, you know, way, you know, from from Egypt into the Promised Land, and it really captures that whole act of redemption there that God has has patterned, um, Christ's life, death, and resurrection after. And so the way is just a shorthand, and is just a shorthand way of saying, "Oh, those coming out of exile, those coming into the new creation, those who are part of God's people who are now entering into the eternal state, uh, of spiritually speaking, and you know, at least initially speaking." And um, so here, I try to show how well Luke begins that discussion. So Acts really crystallizes what we find in the Gospel of Luke. And this whole way, in fact, one of the unique features of Luke's gospel is so there uh, all three gospels. They generally they 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 generally put Jesus's ministry into three phases. Um, Jesus is in Galilee; he's very successful there, and then that's the first stage. The second stage is when Jesus begins to head south to Jerusalem, and so from uh, Peter's confession. All the way into uh, Jerusalem, Jesus is then on the way. See that word, on the way to Jerusalem. He's beginning to, he's beginning, there, this, you know, the, the, the narrative is getting, uh, you know, sort of, sort of very apocalyptic here. It's getting darker, mm-hmm. and the persecution and suffering are on the horizon. And then the third phase is then his death and resurrection in Jerusalem itself. And so, Luke astoundingly dedicates a third of the narrative. In fact, it's even a little bit more than a third of from the end of chapter nine to the end of chapter 19. So for 10 whole chapters, Jesus is on the way. He's moving south Mm -hmm. from Peter's confession on the way on this road to Jerusalem. And it's here where we find the brilliance of Luke's gospel, because this is when Jesus speaks his most famous parables. And he's now speaking to the crowd, and things are getting dire, and it's very difficult to follow this son of man who's going to suffer and die and rise again. This is when the gospel is really confronting people, and it's very difficult to digest. And so Luke is going to frame this whole movement, the southern movement, as he's going on the way. This is when he is going to uh, uh, execute the second Exodus, and that in his death and resurrection. He is then, he himself is coming out of exile. He goes into exile on the cross and has comes out of exile into the promised land of the new creation in his resurrection. Tom writes really good here. I think he's very good here. The problem is that he collapses too much into that. However, he's right to say that Jesus is Israel going into exile and then on into the promised land in his resurrected and glorified existence. I think he's right to say that. Um, So Luke really really uh wants his uh, attunes he attunes his reader to mm-hmm. that dimension. Now this is going to feed admirably into Paul and obviously your work on Galatians, Matt. So did you want to I mean is there anything you want to add because Paul is going to use this same paradigm sure. and uh apply it more to believers than to Christ yeah. himself, right?
0: Yes, I'm actually going to go back into Luke though because I think it's a good example of Here's where paying careful attention to the details right. helps you see the richness of it. So, right. um, you know, nine fifty one is the is the start of this right. journey right. to Jerusalem.
1: So you've got he sets uh, his face towards Jerusalem. That's what yes.
0: And what's beautiful about this is the fact that that is an allusion Ooh. to a servant song. It's Spicy. Isaiah fifty.
1: Yeah, it's Isaiah Spicy. fifty. Spicy, I missed it. I missed it, Luke. I missed it, Matt it's the servant it's the
0: third servant song which is all about this uh about the suffering of the servant as well about about the beard being plucked out and being spit right. on and all of that um and so it's i think it's one of those additional indicators that what luke is showing you is that jesus is the isianic servant of yahweh mm. who is accomplishing mm. that new exodus that promised new exodus mm. and of course it's very clear, and you do a good job dealing with uh, the, the the quotation of Isaiah 40 in the in right. John John the right. Baptist ministry. And that's right. that's foundational. You've right. got the uh, the quotation of Isaiah 61 in the Nazareth Ooh, synagogue four, service, yeah. And so it's just one of those things where when you look at these allusions, even the more subtle references, it's like Luke kind of tipping the hat and saying, "Just look a little closer." And you'll see even more is here in terms of this new Exodus theme that Mm -hmm. Jesus is the servant accomplishing the new Exodus for his people.
1: And that that prepares you for what's coming down the road there. Let me ask you this, Matt, because you've written on this in your NSBT volume on servant and servants. What are some texts in the Old Testament where you can actually see an individual having his or her own exodus. In other words, now that person may or may not be called a servant. I think sometimes we get it, but there are times Mm -hmm. when I think you can actually see, oh my gosh, this individual is experiencing his or her own exodus, which kind of lays a nice trajectory for what we will find in the new Testament.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I I think the two most prominent examples um, that come to my mind are both Joseph and Moses. So very Great, that's early good. biblical that storyline. I
1: was thinking more Moses, but you're right. But you're right about jo- what what makes you think about Joseph to kind of put you on the spot here. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, Joseph is obviously
0: sold into slavery uh, right. by his brothers. Mm-hmm. He is in captivity, mm-hmm. and he manages to eventually be vindicated
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, serve in a capacity that allows others to prosper as well. So through his vindication, others are blessed.
1: I mean, he's rolling so, over the nations too, right? Yeah, he's exactly.
0: Over. Exactly. And so really, I think he is, um, he he's one of the initial examples on an individual level, you see that. Um, but, you know, I mean, Moses is is an obvious example, I think too, he ends up, he, and, and you know, there's no, there's no accidental or coincidental thing here. He's, he's off, in Midian
1: for 40 years, you know, like, I mean, come on, he's called, you know, coming, you know, drawn out of the water, right? Just the Exodus, right? That's, I mean, that's his name for goodness sakes.
0: Yeah. And, and so again, this is, this is an example where, um, you know, we've talked about illusions, we've talked about echoes, but here's an example now of talking about patterns of Mm -hmm. repeated patterns of Mm -hmm. uh, similar kinds of experiences and actions that should, alert us to, oh, this is a common way that God works. And it's pointing forward to a greater reality
1: of what Jesus Mm -hmm. himself
0: accomplishes.
1: So you would argue then that those, those past events, let's say Moses and, and Joseph, Mm -hmm. they're not simply analogs, they're types, they're prophetic types, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, in particular I think the, the, the piece that, that captures my attention is sometimes we can get so focused just on the individual that we miss out on the, the individual experiences this ultimately so that those who are identified with him are blessed with him. Right, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's it's right. not just these sort of oh, isn't that an interesting individual parallel? Where it's just oh well, yeah, J- Joseph is kind of a type, is a type of Christ, and Moses is a type of Christ, but it goes beyond that in terms of understanding that their actions lead to the blessing of others, and that leads us to expect that um, when God acts to fulfill His promises, and they culminate in this. Promised figure, this serpent crusher, this Davidic king, that it's going to happen to an even more heightened level than any previous uh, individual has experienced.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. It, it really you can you can start to see. I call these trajectories. Yeah, built into the text, it it gets you going, and you can see how other people then start to decorate that trajectory. And then yeah. there's some clarity there in the New Testament that that's that speaks to that. That's really good. Yeah, for sure. Well, we
0: probably should start wrapping this up. Um, we didn't get to your chapter on the year of Jubilee, but we'll just have to leave oh, that it's to, all right. to your Keep readers, right? That's little, right. You got a little leave. bit
1: of Christmas in every book.
0: That's right. That's right. And this would be an excellent Christmas gift idea. Oh, for, amen. For
1: amen. I mean, you know, do it buy for Buy five copies, 10. Kids. I mean,
0: give one to everybody in the family, right?
1: Do it for so, uh, right. but I will say,
0: I, I do think, Uh, this volume is super helpful. If you're, uh, just personally interested in reading about the gospel of Luke, if you're preaching on the gospel of Luke, you should get this book. It'll help you make connections that you're probably not going to see, uh, otherwise. And even if you're a small group leader or something, you don't have to be seminary trained to read this or to benefit from it. Um, you've done a great job of writing it at an accessible level. So this would be even just a great devotional read. I think this hey, is something oh man, that oh man. would be a great uh, accompaniment <laughs> to your reading of the gospel of Luke. So,
1: Well, thank you so, so much. A very, very kind words. Yeah.
0: yeah. Help put Ben's kids through college here. He's got to save right. up for I that saw, down the road. There was a
1: David Allen Black uh, footnote that a friend of mine mentioned to me. And in the footnote, he said, And um, I'm so thankful that these copies or he he says that he goes in the sale of these copies will benefit the, the needy children. And then the footnote says my own, my own. (laughs) (laughs) own. (laughs) so good. Yes. That's so good. All right.
0: Well, Hey, let's, uh, let's kind of wrap up by talking about any other resources on the gospel of Luke that you might want to commend to people uh, as they, I mean, we've mentioned you have two other, uh, you have your chapter in the story uh, mm-hmm. retold. story retold, As- right. And then with, uh, the Greg handbook Biel, on the gospels.
1: Greg Beal yeah. and I wrote that together, and that's published with IVP. That's more of a New Testament introduction. Yeah, It's more for uh, college students. That's textbook. It's got lots of great pictures, really gloss. Mm-hmm. So if you like those things, uh, that's really kind of a, a succinct way of getting at it. Then I have a much fuller treatment, roughly 40,000, 50,000 words in my handbook on the gospels that's published by Baker that came out last year yeah um so those two things are very biblical theological i really like i think my favorite all around so i have two commentaries in particular they both do different things one is james edwards on luke in the pillar Mm -hmm. i think his is really good it's a really good all-around commentary and then david garland in the zondervan exegetical commentary in the new testament uh both between garland and edwards they're gonna really uh do you well i really like those uh, i really like those two And, uh, Daryl Bach has in, in the Zonervin biblical theology series that Kostenberger edits. Yeah. Uh, he has a theology of Luke and Acts. He just sort of looks like he took his Luke and Acts commentary and just kind of squat, you know, isolated all these pieces. And so that's a good volume. I think if you want to trace some of these things, uh, I really like David Powell. Now it's on the Acts side of things, acts in the new Testament. Oh, I'm sorry. Acts in the Isianic new exodus where he really gets into the second Exodus stuff. It's just a terrific. And so he traces it back to Luke. I, in that same vein, I also really, really enjoy Alan Thompson, the acts of the risen Lord in the NSBT set. Just one of the best books on acts that I've read. I mean, it really is that good. Um, Don't forget about David Powell and Schnaubert Eckert Schnabel's essay in the Carson and I'm sorry, in the and Carson commentary, new Testament of the old, Yep, that's a really good overview. And just a sort of a forthcoming thing next year. Uh, I'm editing and Matt's contributed to this, a, a big dictionary of the New Testament use of the old. And David Powell wrote the use of the Old Testament in Luke. And it's really, really good. And it's a, it's 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 just a terrific essay. And even though you can't read it now. Just put a, put a, it's not even available on, when, when, it, when Amazon has, you know, has the, has the thing, I tell you the bookmark, yeah. can't book a market yet. You will soon. And it's yes. just a terrific overview. It's one of the best overviews of the, of the use of scripture in, uh, in Luke. Yeah. The,
0: the other thing I will mention, this, this is much more for probably seminary students, uh, maybe slightly helpful to the pastor though. You might just not, might not have time enough to, to dig into it is, um, Dale Allison Jr. has a book entitled "The Intertextual Jesus:
1: Oh, Right Scripture right.
0: in Q." Now, right. it only deals with allusions and echoes that are in the Q material. So, basically, the overlap between Matthew and Luke that's not found in Mark. So, it's not a comprehensive, uh, but it is uh, pretty detailed at points and can can uh, be very insightful at points. Uh, right. so that's another place to check i really for... like
1: matt do you like richard hayes's book the echoes of scripture and the gospels it's that baylor it's a big baylor mm-hmm. hardback that came out a couple yeah. of years ago you yeah know, he's got a chapter on luke and that would be a, a again another place i i'm it, it you know you got to be a little careful with with richard hayes but by and yes. large i like what he's selling
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i have the same sort of uh not love hate, but a like read him. He's, he's, he's and he's fascinating in terms of how he reads. creative. I would say
1: I agree with him 80% of the time, 70 to 80% of the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and in the nature of a book like that, he doesn't have the space to like always drill Mm -hmm. down into the details and show Mm -hmm. you like, no, this is how I'm getting here. It's just sort of a, Mm -hmm. and this connects to this and this connects Mm -hmm. to this. Right. Right. Oh, like, you know, so, uh, yeah, absolutely worth reading, but, um, yeah, those are some great places to go, uh, with, uh, future, uh, study of Luke, but Ben, thanks for writing this book. Uh, I think it's really going to serve the church well. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we were able to highlight a little bit and, um, you know, it's, it's fun to be able to discuss these kinds of things with you, not just from a sort of let's interview the author perspective, but like, let's, mm-hmm. let's dig into the text. Let's, let's mm-hmm. see how you're engaging the text and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully help our listeners see the value of biblical theology, how it helps you understand and put your Bible together. But also, and I know you share this, this desire that it, it fuels love for God, mm-hmm. delight in God, worship of God, and ultimately obedience to God. Mm. And that's, Mm. that's the fuel behind this. This is not just an academic exercise. So people go, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. Like it's the heart behind it is to help you worship God better and be Mm. a more faithful follower of Jesus.
1: That's right. Remember, you know, when Jesus is famously on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to the two disciples and he's like, well, you know, tell me more about this guy you're talking about. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, he's mighty. He's a prophet, mighty indeed. You know, Well, those things are right. Yes, of course they're yeah. right. But it's it's 20%. Yeah. What about the other major components of who Jesus is? And then he says, sure. oh, you guys are so slow of heart. Yeah. And uh, he really berates them for not what? This is amazing. For not reading the Old Testament well. Yeah. And because they don't read the Old Testament well, they don't know who he is. Do you see? You cannot understand yeah. Jesus apart from Scripture. You cannot understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament. And apart from reading it, well, so this is not simply an academic exercise. This is if you want to know who Jesus is, you need to know the Old Testament. You need to know how the Mm -hmm. apostles talk about Jesus and relate him to the Old Testament, because really the foundation of the gospel is uh, is is right there. And it uh, it really is a life and death matter. Yeah, for sure. Well, we want to thank
0: you for joining us on this thank you. Uh, thank you. latest latest episode of the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast. Uh, we are working on ideas for future episodes, and so if you've got suggestions, we welcome them. You can contact us on social media. Uh, you can email us uh, at bibtheobriefingpod at gmail.com. Uh, reach out to us, and we'd love to consider those, but Uh, Thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you again on the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast.